I think there's a there's a sense in which if there are things we need to say. We we need to make some affirmations. There are answers. But if we live with those answers well, they remain living questions themselves. They open out on other questions. If you were to ask me, is God good? Well, yes, the answer is yes, God is good. But that is itself a living question, not because God is not good or might turn out not to be good, but because God's goodness is more than I can catch up to, right? So that when I say God is good, I'm not saying enough yet. And so I have to live with that answer humbly and playfully. Welcome to the Liminal Living Podcast. I am Dr. Tom Rundell, curator of conversations. And uh, we have conversations around here for those who are in dark nights, those who are in deconstruction, those who are rethinking their faith, or perhaps things have been a little bit constrained for you. Um, Things have been a little bit violent for you, and you need to distance yourself from those things, and yet you still feel as though you belong to something somewhere that's a liminal spot and this is a podcast that has conversations for people wandering around in those places because i myself i live there that's why it's called liminal living today's conversation is amazing Uh, dr chris green one of my favorite voices um that i've been following for a while he is Definitely an academic, I mean, Dr. Chris Green, very smart individual, has written uh, books and articles, and he's a teacher and a pastor, and um, one of the things that he also is that sings harmony with his, or maybe that's the main line, I'm not sure, but he is an artist, and if you get a chance, uh, you need to go check out his Facebook or Instagram and look at Dr. Green's artwork. It is beautiful. He writes from this place of deep creativity and just kind of like bears witness to what he sees and intuits, I guess. And the artwork is more of the raw material of the theology that then gives birth to the words later. And I really think you're gonna enjoy just the, the poetic beauty of this conversation Uh, We get into some really deep places of art, creativity. Uh, We talk about his hero, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, his faith roots in Pentecostalism, um, and then some of his writings around the incarnation and birth of Christ that he wrote in a wonderful article called How God Becomes Human. So I'm going to let you loose on this conversation with Dr. Chris Green, and I'll see you on the other side. Well, Dr. Chris Green, welcome to the Liminal Living Podcast. It is a joy to have you on with us today. Thank you, Tom. It's good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Hey, I see your puppy in the background now. Is that, is that, that's not Carl. That's, that's, well, it is Carl, but the kids won't let me call him Carl. That's Augie, which is short for Carl Augustine Weimaraner, <laughs> which again, as I said to you, is a wonderful joke for me. The kids, it's lost on them. Because you like Carl Rainer, Rainer. I've yeah, always called him Rainer because I, I read everything. I don't listen to it, so I never know how I'm supposed to pronounce these things. A lot of people refer to the to the breed as Rainer, so it would, that would work too. Mm. He's a cute doggy. Dogs are um, welcome on this podcast. Yeah, he's he's overwhelmingly sweet. He's he's the gentlest dog I've ever been around. I can he's see playful, it. But, but incredibly gentle. Oh, yeah. That's that, that breed there as well. 
Well, we've kind of been, um, it was a long journey to get here. You've had some stuff happening to reschedule. I've had some stuff happening to reschedule, and I'm so glad we get to, we get to land here today for the third, the third week of Advent is when this one will drop. And uh, I've been following your Facebook feed, your podcast, your writing for some time. And I can't remember how I found you, probably through um, Father Kenneth Tanner. I bet you that's where he probably quoted you. And I was like, dang. He's to blame for a lot of it, for he sure. He is the blame. And he was just on here last week. Um, and I was really, like, enthralled with how you write um, just these theological perspectives that's more poetic. And then what I noticed was that you were posting some of the most stunning artwork, like modern iconography almost. It w- it's just beautiful. Or you have these works of Christ, Mary, Adam, Eve. You cover the events of the you know, Holy Week, like crucifixion, Pentecost. You have these whole series, and they're absolutely stunning. Where did you find this knack of art? It, it came back to me. As a kid, I did... You know, I was always painting or drawing. I, I wasn't particularly good at it. I mean, I think in, in terms of realistic representation, you know, like in other kids around me, much more, you know, they could draw a dog and it was clearly not just a dog, but a particular dog, right? Mm-hmm. We could recognize, they could draw Carl Augustine Weimaraner and you'd recognize him. Yeah. And I didn't have that knack, but I did, I did kind of always want to be drawing and would sketch scenes mm-hmm. so I, I my mom worked for a newspaper and she would bring home reams of paper and i would kind of lay them out in my grandparents house they had a kind of open floor plan so i would run it along across three or four rooms and tell a story in these pictures kind of drawing them so it wasn't about kind of accuracy of representation it was much more sub- so kind of what's the word I'm looking for here? Much more symbolic than that, yeah. right? Where this represents that and this represents the other. And it, it helped me think. I realized that drawing in those ways was was a way I, in which I was processing, I was thinking. Mm-hmm. And so I did a lot of that as a, as a young kid. And then some somewhere in my teenage years, I lost it. I, or I lost touch with it. I stopped doing it. And... When my grandmother died, she died the day after my 40th birthday. As she was dying and and when she died. So, you know, the last couple of years before she died and then when she died, I started to grieve. And with that grief, found my way back to painting and sketching again. Mm. And a lot of it, as as you mentioned already, were images of Christ suffering and Mary mm-hmm. suffering. And I, I think that's pretty obvious in terms of where, where my heart is and it kind of has always been. And my work as a theologian, it would make sense that that's where it would go. And that that's how I, I processed it. And it still is, you know, just yesterday, you know, we got news in the morning about my father collapsing and, having to be revived and taken to the emergency room. We weren't sure what it was. And in the waiting, I started drawing again, you know, so there's a, there's something therapeutic about it. You know, it's, it's a language that I find my way to 
in times that are particularly difficult. And so a lot of the art, I think, reflects that, reflects that, that pain. Yeah. I have no pretensions or illusions about being an artist, capital A, but I love, I love to do it. Mm-hmm. And it, it is, it's life-giving for me, for sure. Healing. Yeah. And I, you know, you say you're not, you weren't good at like the actual representation and how you have adjusted, you know, that I don't have that skill, but I can draw symbolically and how you use lines, you know, you know, Mary can just be a simple line with, you know, a bump for the head, a bump for the pregnant belly. And I know what it is. And I know what you're communicating with it as well. And you're saying it's coming from this place that's deep within you that is processing, you know, grief and life and connecting your story to the stories of the gospels. And it's coming out in like this artistic expression. Have you seen your art evolve in any way or have you kind of stuck in the same vein and no, no, no. I, I think there are lots of shifts for me. And some of that is, again, I'm processing, I'm thinking, I'm exploring, you know, the, and I, I can tell the difference, you know, between sometimes an image will come to me either in a dream or in a flash and I will do the best I can to get that image. And other times I I'm sitting with a feeling really more than, an image or, or a thought and start to try to draw toward, let that draw out of me, so mm-hmm. to speak. Right. It's that image of kind of pulling poison out of the wound. I think there's a way in which drawing for me does draw that out. Mm. And the, there, there's a, an image I can't, I don't remember if this is on Instagram or not, but there's an image. It's a line drawing of the Holy family and it's Joseph and Mary turn toward each other with the belly between them. And it's very simple. I mean, I, I probably sketched it in a minute, maybe two minutes. Wow. But it came like in a flash. I, I, during, during a particular moment, I suddenly like saw the Holy Family as one shape. And, you know, so if you, if you see the image, you... That's incredibly simple, incredibly simple. It does have, I think, depth because mm. it is coming from my unconscious. It's coming from something deeper than, you know, the, the right brain instrumentality Yeah, that I think we often operate from the, yeah. I mean, I could talk more about it, but oh. you, you get, and you, you <laughs> yeah. see, there's another one that's, there's another one just to mention something else. There, there's another one that shows the, the face of Mary. It's one of the more joyous ones. It's the face of Mary looking at the stars. And this came to me hearing about the Magi, it, you know, it was a sermon during epiphany and hearing about the the magi and the stars and i suddenly i just started to wonder like did mary notice this star did she know it was there Mm. if she did what what did she make of it and something about that was 
it took me from a place of kind of contemplation and wonder to to delight so if you see the piece i'm looking at it right now actually <laughs> you you can see that there that's wonder and joy it's not grief but there are mm-hmm. lots of pieces in fact when i shared that one i shared on instagram so if you're looking at it on instagram it's paired with an image of mary that is deeply grieved so it's mm. a kind of look at her face as if she's re- be seen her own reflection in the water yeah. and again that's an image that came to me of, of mary she's often represented in the tradition as being at a well when the angel comes to her and she's and so i again what came to me is her bent over the well and seeing her face in this moment of the annunciation mm-hmm. and she's deeply troubled like deeply troubled in fact there's like a, a a light right in the center of her head that speaks also to me about headaches i mean migraines have been a major part of my story and so some of this is about processing that pain i think at some level mm-hmm. but i mean those are a couple of ways like in which i'm getting at and, and those two pieces those mary pieces are not line drawings i mean those are paintings yeah i'm they're so you can see different but there's no clear staging it's not like you know i went through a period where i was only painting and then did line drawings and vice versa Mm -hmm. just find my way around it you know without really much intentionality just whatever i'm again to play on words whatever i'm drawn to yeah drawn (laughs) yeah and i mean newsflash you are an artist this I mean, this stuff is beautiful. Thank um, you, man. I really appreciate it. It's, um, it communicates theology in, in a way that I think when you write, you do it in the same vein, in the same stream. You're not just telling people about ideas. You know, mm-hmm. when you're, when you're doing theology, you're, you're doing it in this poetic, prophetic, artistic way that, you know, I've listened to you, um, I think it was on the Inverse podcast, you were going through the book of Hebrews and you were just like, the guys were crying as you were explaining Hebrews and I was, you know, welling up in tears as you're explaining Hebrews. I've never cried reading Hebrews, but then hearing you explain it, that's something yeah. that only art does, you know, it's not just, yeah. Yeah, let, me, yeah. let me put information in your brain. You're like this artistic theologian. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't think I, you know, the All Things Beautiful book, which was the first of a trilogy, I, I, I talked about this in the introduction to that book. I mean, I, I really do think art is what moved me to prayer. Hmm. I, I was, when I was a young, young child, I had, my parents had taken me to a museum and I'd, I'd gotten separated from them a bit like Jesus left in the Jerusalem, I guess. And I walked around a corner. It, it was a house that had been converted to a museum. Okay. And so there's art kind of everywhere on every wall. And I was walking through one of those rooms and above a doorway, there was a painting and you know, I'm 10 years old, something like that in the, in the doorway there. I'm, and I'm just completely arrested by it. And when my, when my mother found me, I was just standing there weeping in the the painting itself was the, the title of the painting was emptiness has a claim on death i have a print of it hanging really? in my living room right now 
I tried, my parents tried to buy the original from me, but it was already donated to the museum and they wouldn't sell it. Hmm. But the print would, they were able to get from me and gave it to me that year at Christmas. But the, the painting shows a, a warrior, a native American warrior who's kind of sitting on a hill and his mid his middle is transparent that you can see through him. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a kind of a realistic painting it looks almost photographic, but then from his chest to his waist, he's invisible. You can see through him and you can see on his face that he's, he's grieving. And again, the title of the piece is emptiness has a claim on death and something about that image before I knew the title, before I knew the story that lies behind it, before I had language for why it was moving, it arrested me. It it captured me really. And I think that that, uh, that awakened something in me. And then in college as a freshman, I read Moby Dick and that, loosed me loosed you know kind of you know awoke me from a kind of slumber and gave me gave me a way of talking and drew, drew me to words to the kind of the the drunken joy of of the language that's in that book but also the the, the philosophical the grieving the anger that drives the, that story the, the sense of the tragic but also the tragic comic, right? The absurdity of so much of what's happening. I, I think that, that, and then I read George MacDonald's Lilith. I think in many ways, those are the kinds of events that made me a theologian, right? Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's, it's novels and paintings that made me a theologian and films, not theology books. I love reading dogmatics or historical theology because I love art, not the other way around. Mm, yeah. Someone uh, they once asked me, you know, I need to know what, what's your stance on sin, and I just said, "Go read Grapes of Wrath." You know, that's there you go. Yeah, it. yeah, 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 absolutely. And they're like, "What do you, What do you mean?" And I said, "You read that; it illustrates what I'm talking about." Yeah, yeah, okay. and more than illustrates, right? Oh, so yeah. So, like, I was talking with someone the other day about this. The art at its best doesn't merely illustrate a truth; it involves us in it. Mm. It involves us in the truth, so that we experience the truth from a particular perspective, of course. But we experience the truth, and then know it. We we know it in a way that we might not yet have language for. We might not be able to rationalize what we know yet. Yeah. Although I, I think that comes, you mm-hmm. know, faith is seeking understanding, but I, I think music, architecture, painting, poetry, whatever, any of it that's done well, it involves us in a reality. It doesn't just illustrate it. And so to your point, you know, reading grapes of wrath or, you know, a good example of this would be if someone asks a question about the image of God, I would say to them, depending on who they are and depending on what the setting is, go and read Cormac McCarthy's Child of God, which is about a serial killer and necrophiliac in Tennessee, based loosely based on a true story. 
read, read, read that story, read the story of Lester Ballard. And then, and then let's talk about what we're talking about when we talk Mm. about the image of God. I have not read that one, that one. Oh, it's, it's harrowing. Whoever your listeners are, go forward cautiously. (laughs) It's a harrowing book. That's why I said I wouldn't just recommend it to anyone who said, let's talk about the image of God. But under certain circumstances, if you're ready for it, I think that book is, it's an exploration of what are we, what do we mean when we talk about every human person is made in the image of God? What happens when that human person just loses all their humanity? Mm. Can can you lose all of your humanity? And if so, what are you then? And and where how are you related at that point to God and to your neighbor? C.S. Lewis, who's you know an enormous influence for virtually everyone, he argues that you can lose your humanity to the point that there's nothing there left for God to love. In fact, that's what he thinks hell is, that hell is having lost your humanity so completely that there's no you left. Mm-hmm. There's a line, I think it's in Problem of Pain, where he says, you know, a damned soul is not is, is something like the fumes left after a fire has burned out. It's 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 not the wood anymore, it's not the fire, it's just the remains of what once was a fire. And he, he seems to think that that's what happens to us if we let sin go on and on and on. Mm-hmm. George MacDonald insists that that's not true. And this is why, you know, so when MacDonald says love is deepest in all that love has loved into being, he means that you can't essentially waste away entirely because if you are wasting away, what you come to eventually is the fire of God that holds you in being. And I don't think there's any doubt that McDonald theologically is much sounder than Lewis on that point. But <laughs> those are the kinds of questions that theological questions that come up when you're reading yeah. a, a work like Child of God. Yeah. And like we, we want to know, like a lot of modern day folks are like, well, which one is it? You know, tell me the answer. Tell me what you think. Tell me. And it's like, I just like exploring the questions. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's philosophize about it. Let's, and, uh, and I I do think I want to, you know, I want to try to thread a needle there. Like I, I do think there's a, there's a kind of facile way of telling people, you know, it's not about the answers. It's about the questions, but I, I don't think that's quite right. I think, I think there's a, there's a sense in which there are things we need to say. We, We need to make some affirmations. There are answers. Yes. But if we live with those answers well, they remain living questions themselves. They open out on other questions. Whoa. So that even if if I say something like if you if you were to ask me, is God good? Well, yes, the answer is he yes, God is good. But that is itself a living question. Not because God is not good or might turn out not to be good, but because God's goodness is more than I can catch up to. Right. So that when I say God is good. I'm not saying enough yet. I'm not saying enough yet because his goodness is too much for me to say. And and so I have to live with that answer humbly and playfully. And I think by and large, rabbinic tradition 
and this this may not quite be fair, but there, I think you see that humility and playfulness better sometimes in rabbinic tradition than you do yeah. Christian dogma. They're used to midrashing the scriptures and exploring it with their imaginations and stories and what ifs. And but I really love that um, the answer becomes a living question because the way that so many seek the answer is like me as the bug collector when I was eight, you know, it's like, I need to, I need to grab it. I need to put it dead in the thing, stick a needle through it. It's in my collection. Done deal. Don't need to revisit that one again, unless I want to show it off. And you're like, no, this is a, we don't want it to be a dead answer. We want it to be a living question. That's my brain kind of popped open a little bit on that one. That's really, that's really great. Yeah. I, I do think there's a, there is a way of engaging truths that's very untruthful. It's trying, as you're saying, it's trying to to capture and catalog mm-hmm. truths that we then we have pinned to the page and we can put on display. You know, I caught this truth this time, and and now I'm done with it. Right, and here mm-hmm. here's the trophy. That's not that's not a truthful relationship to truth. Yeah, and there there has to be joy, surprise, delight, playfulness, wonder grief i mean the the truth has to take us out into the deep places and to the heights and 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 out like out into the extremes it's it's not something that can be managed the, the truth is not you know it's not an artifact and it, it, it's not a trophy it, it's it's my relation to jesus and me coming to know him who is the truth and that's always opening out on wonder inside of wonder inside of wonder. Yeah. And that's what art gives you. It almost like, you know, the living questions are the words, you know, but then art is like the tapestry that those things can go on or the, the page itself, or it gives you the grounding to keep moving in that, in that playful spirit that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, th- I think again, not everything that gets called art is artful in that way, but yeah, but art true to itself, it does awaken the childlikeness in us in a way that also makes us wise, right? So it, it, it requires you to face the gone wrongness of the world and all of its ugliness. It, again, art that's worthy of the name doesn't, it, it doesn't, it doesn't sentimentalize, right? It, it doesn't gloss over anything. It, uh, it doesn't gild reality. It lets you see the real for what it is, but it does that in a way that opens your spirit up. Mm -hmm. So it's not just unrelentingly dark because it's not simply showing you the gone wrongness of the world. It's showing you the gone wrongness of the world in such a way that your spirit rises to that, rises to meet it. And if it doesn't do that, then it's, it's not poetry worthy of that name or it's not, you know, a painting worthy of that name or a novel or whatever else, a film. Yeah. Yeah. I did some exploration when I was doing my doctorate degree on the origins of the term theologian thinking, Mm. you know, when I think theologian, you know, I'm thinking somebody very scientifically, you know, parsing the scriptures. And when I learned that the word theologian is actually, like it wasn't Christian. It was in. It was a Roman term about um, 
the person who took the stories of the gods and then put them to liturgical music and poetry for the people mm -hmm. so that they can hear and know it. That was a theologian, and the first time it appears in a Christian context, it's used as a footnote. And uh, John, who wrote Revelation, saying, John the theologian. And then I was just like, wait a second, this is not what I thought it was. This word theologian is more of a poetic, artistic, not necessarily as the scientist putting dead bugs in their little boxes. Hmm. Oh, I, yeah, not, yeah, it's definitely not that, right? I mean, the, like, theology, the theologian is the one who prays. I mean, that's the famous formula, right? But it's also the theologian is the one who sings. The theologian is the one who plays. Mm -hmm. Like, the the theologian is someone who's, whose life has come alive in ways that have kind of vivified ways of talking about God, right? So the, theology is testimony, brought to speech that's recognizable hmm. and shareable yeah recognizable as witness to jesus and the god he reveals and that requires again the opening of spirit the the opening of our our imaginations and i, I think it's important here to, to say imagination is not like a capacity we have to make things up imagination is our spiritedness coming alive in the way it apprehends the world and the way that we experience the world and make sense of the world. Imagination is my entire consciousness becoming attuned, more and more attuned to what's presented to it. The, the, the mystery of God, the complexity of human being, the absurdity of evil, as my consciousness starts to come aware of that, imagination is that capacity is that capacity right not one of the things that i can do if i want to make up a story say or tell a lie mm. but my sensitivity and the keenness of my perception for what is actually happening in god and neighbor like that that we need to mean and so now when 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 you talk about imagination we're talking about something closely closely related to faith mm -hmm. yeah uh, so you say we should not confuse imagination for just mere creativity. Yeah. Yeah. Making stuff up. Exactly. Yeah. And I, so like creativity is, is not at all, I would argue is not at all making things up. And I, I think if you listen to any great artist, sculptor or novelist or poet, they don't make things up very much. Mm -hmm. Like they'll almost all of them tell you that things come to them or they notice things or they're moved by things and they try to bear witness to it. They don't just bring something out of nothing. You know, yeah. I remember in, in college, I, I wasn't afflicted with this so much, but I had, I had friends around me who were, you know, they have a, they have something coming up, a, a paper that's due say, and they don't know what to write. So they're sitting in front of their word processor back then, these gigantic desktop computers yeah. with a blank page open, just waiting for something to come to them. Right? They don't mm -hmm. even know how to begin to write. And I think a lot of us think that art is like that. You're making stuff up. You're inventing from nothing, but really it's, it's almost always having the kind of spirit that's prepared to receive what shows up. Mm-hmm. You know, and suddenly there's a story in your head or there's a character in your head or there's a line from a poem or an image you've seen that you now have to put on film or capture with 
the camera, like the uh, art, the greatest artists are not inventors in that sense, but they're witnesses. They've sensed something, they've felt something and they're, they're testifying to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Greeks would call that the genius. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But notice the genius is, is understood as a, as another voice. Yes. Right. Like it's not something, again, it's not something they've made for themselves. Yep. It's something that's come to them almost possessed by it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I have, I've felt what you have just described when, you know, I'm wrestling with, um, you know, preparing a sermon for the, for the coming Sunday and I'm reading the text and it's like, I know what it means, but I don't know what I should say about that yet. And then some insight, a piece of poetry or a painting or just even a story, you know, comes and then all of a sudden there's that flash that doesn't have words yet. And I know that I have to sit down right now and capture what's about to come out. And it's, it feels exterior and interior at the same time. I think that's exactly right. I just wrote that line earlier today. Like the work of the spirit is always simultaneously without and within. Mm -hmm. The spirit is coming upon us because the spirit is rising up within us. Out of your belly will flow rivers of living water and the spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Like the, the, the coming from without and within, mm. I think experientially we, we sense that. And if we pay attention to our experience, then traditional Christian language, dogmatic language can help us recognize, oh, that's what's happening to me. This is a way of naming what I've just experienced, what I've undergone. I didn't expect this conversation to go this way for this long, but it's so wonderful. Um, man. Yeah, it's a delight. I, I love, I mean, there's nothing really that I enjoy more than kind of reflecting on the the spirit in which we read scripture and the, the preach and pray. Mm -hmm. I, I, we, we have far too few conversations like this, Tom. So thank you for making this possible. Yeah. Now, like what are what are the faith roots that you have? Like what's the soil that your life has grown out of that kind of produces this that we see today? The label for it is classical Pentecostalism. So it's a holiness Pentecostal tradition. It's what I call now sweaty Pentecostalism. <laughs> we went to church all the time for hours every time, four times a week at least, and very often more than that for hours every time and it's loud and and boisterous kind of spirituality it's noisy smelly spirituality so much about it that went wrong i mean i i don't i don't want to romanticize it there's much about it that is romantic i think but also, there was much about it that was diseased and disorienting, but that's what, that's what shaped me for good or bad. Mm -hmm. And I, of course, had a stretch where I distanced myself from a lot of that, but those are the people I've known for them. I mean, of course I move in other circles too. And as I've, as I've grown and changed over the years, I've entered into more and more circles that are wider and wider, but that's still, that's my native tongue, so to speak, the people who speak in tongues. Yeah. What, what do you think is something 
beautiful that came from that soil? And then maybe what are the things that you had to kind of work out of your spirituality? I think what was beautiful about it was a sense of the, that, that God is living and active, right? That, that God is a force in our lives and a presence in the room. I, I think in, if we could make this distinction in the heat of the moment, when they were talking to God, the Pentecostals that shaped me were doing something beautiful. It's when they shifted out of talking to God to talking for God or about God mm. that they weren't, they did not know what they were doing. <laughs> Most of them. Oh, yeah. And it, it very quickly became something else. I think there was a movement that was a movement of prayer and renewal, a redirection of the heart and the body toward God and the dynamic presence of God. But because they didn't, by and large, they those people, those early Pentecostal mothers and fathers, because they didn't find their way back into the heart of the faith. They didn't, they had a movement that wasn't traditioned well. It wasn't mm -hmm. rooted and grounded in the faith. And therefore, they were filling in the gaps, theological, pastoral gaps, unwisely. Mm -hmm. They didn't know what they were talking about. They didn't know what they were doing. So again, we're singing to God or praying to God, being present to God. The wholeheartedness of that, I think, is beautiful. But the moment you shift away from that to talking to someone who's lost a child tragically or to to standing by you know, the someone who's about to die, in those moments we were completely overmatched. Or talking to a couple whose marriage was coming apart or talking to a child who's been abused and so on and so on and so on and so on. Like we, we just didn't have any wisdom. But that, that's that's overstated. There was there were far too wise people far too few wise people uh, that's an odd phrasing mm -hmm. but you my point yeah there's there's that um classic pentecostal saying that says you know we don't need no education because we have the holy ghost that came out of this like anti-academic movement did you see see that within that tradition that you grew out of as well you do, you do although there's an irony there as almost I mean, one of the things that I've said, one of the one of the quips that I throw out from time to time is like your capacity to appreciate irony is the measure of your trustworthiness as a pastor and a teacher. Mm. Like, can, are you sensitive to irony and do you recognize recognize it? If you can't, if irony is lost on you, then you don't have the imagination to to do the work that's required. Mm -hmm. and, and there are deep ironies in that tradition because. There is, even though much of it is framed, and this has been true right from the very beginning, late 1800s, early 1900s, you can see that kind of anti-establishment backlash against higher education and against academic theology in particular. And a lot of that is rhetoric because they're actually practicing scholarship while they do it. You know, so many of those same people, even... It's a kind of populist 
rhetorical move, mm-hmm. but they're they're devoted to deep study and they're reading widely. And many of those early leaders were formed in traditions in which they had they had been ordained and trained for ministry, and then have been kind of brought into an experience of the fire of God that has kind of set their lives ablaze, including their minds. So much of the early work in the tradition, what Walter Holdenbeer calls the heart and not the infancy of the movement, is deeply theological. Like there, there is, is even by people who you would think were distancing themselves from the academic, mm-hmm. they are distancing themselves from higher education as they understand it. But they're deeply studious. They're, they devour not only scripture, but books about scripture. They're endlessly fascinated by theological conversation. And, and that's, there's a ferment to it. And much of that work is imaginative. It's, it is, I mean, it's deeply shaped by black experience. I mean, it's the slave spirituals and black preaching style that shapes so much of this mm. that, that I'm calling the classical Pentecostal tradition. Again, Walter Holdenweger has, has done a, a lot of work on that front. There, there wouldn't be classical Pentecostalism without the black experience. Mm-hmm. And, and that art, that artistic instinct that leads to jazz and blues and the call response of preaching and, and the groan, like all of that stuff is, is in the DNA of the classical Pentecostalism I grew up with. The problem is the social and economic and political forces that dominated the working class white people that trained me or raised me, those eventually kind of hemmed in and squelched the spirit, lowercase and capital mm-hmm. S spirit of that, of the energy mm-hmm. of that movement. And so it, it in, there were still hints here and there of it. And as I said, when it turned to prayer, you could still feel that at times, mm-hmm. but it was ultimately, I think overcome by, those other forces, the the worldly forces, the principalities and powers of politics and economics and social class, all of that. Yeah, you used the term principalities and powers, and from that Pentecostal tradition, they would have um, used those terms for something else. And I like how you tied it to something very concrete of you know the political, economic, social forces instead of the demon under every rock kind of a understanding that maybe would have directed that group. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there was a literal, literal mindedness to our sense of evil, a literal mindedness to everything we did almost. And that, that is death. I mean, literal mindedness is death. So we, we mythologized about Satan and demons. In fact, I, I'm, this may sound like exaggeration, but it's not. I think we had, we had a clearer sense of who Satan was, what his powers were, what his agendas were, than we did God. Mm. (laughs) We were certain about Satan's work in our lives in a way we were not sure about God's. And I I think that's telling. Yeah. I've not heard it put to words like that before, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, you may have heard me talk about this, but there's a catechism from that period this is it was written in the 50s pentecostal catechism and the first chapter is on god it, it's it has the same basic shape as the it's coming through the wesleyan tradition which is of course 
itself coming from the Anglican tradition. So it has that shape. So the first chapter is on God, and then it moves to angels, and it's stunning. It's stunning, stunning, stunning when I work students through the catechism, how little we know about God when we're done with the chapters on God and how much we immediately know about angels, right? <laughs> like it, it's striking the way the catechism is set up. You get the impression that we really can't know much about God, but we can know exactly everything we need to know about Satan. And I, I think that's, it's deeply troubling. It's deeply telling. But it's also fascinating to me. Like, what, what is it? What kind of movement comes to that place, and how does it get there? Right? How how do you get to that place? And some of it, it it's that backlash against what now people call disenchantment, the disenchantment of modernity. You know, there, there's been a lot of talk now. Charles Taylor's popularized it, and other people that you know we live in a kind of disenchanted age. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't. Like, I lived in a hyper enchanted world that was a reaction against perceived disenchantment, right? So the we, we lived in a world in which angels and demons were more real than the human beings around us. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, and I, I generally, I think that's true for most people. I, I think the rumors of disenchantment are greatly exaggerated. I, I don't know outside of what elite academics wrote on paper. I'm not sure disenchantment ever really have much leverage anywhere in in American life. I think we've all been much more superstitious than that, <laughs> but the people I grew up in were, were deeply superstitious. But again, right at the heart of all of it was this sense of there is a living God who speaks and, and acts and can be spoken to and acted upon. And that there is, is something holy. So with all the, all of the, the ways in which I think it was a disoriented and disorienting movement, that lost its way in, in, in all kinds of ways. There was something true about it right there at the heart. Mm-hmm. Now you, you talk a lot about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and how much of a guide he has been for you. And it seems um, interesting from my perspective that someone steeped in the Pentecostal tradition would find so much life in you know, someone coming from a German Lutheran tradition. Can you kind of tell us what is it about Bonhoeffer that grabbed your attention and imagination and Mm. then helped guide you along your pathway? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. I, I don't know that I know entirely. The first thing I read by him, which is, you know, not going to surprise anyone was cost of discipleship. And I didn't like it. I, I didn't like it. I was an undergrad at the time. It wasn't taught to me well. Mm-hmm. You know, w- when it was presented to us, we didn't have enough guidance. Like the the professor didn't, I don't think gave it the right kind of context, didn't write, help us read it. Of course, I found out later that Bonhoeffer himself said that it was a very dangerous book and shouldn't be read in separation, or it shouldn't be separated from his other work. And that if it were, it'd be, it'd be misunderstood. And I think that's what happened. I think Bonhoeffer, unfortunately, he's famous He's so famous that people think they know his work when they don't really. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's volumes and volume, you know, 14 plus volumes in the Dietrich Bonhoeffer work series, massive volumes. And he, he has a lot more to say than warning us against cheap grace. And it's, 
it's really important, I think, to read more widely. It was reading life together that I think kind of turned my head a bit. Oh, he's he's saying other things. But I I, I think what struck me about it is there's there's a truthfulness to him, and it was when I read Ethics that I I realized okay here's here's someone who's going to be a companion with me for the rest for the rest of my life you know so I loved life together. But if I had stopped there and hadn't read ethics, you know, I, I wouldn't think of myself as deeply in his debt, you know, like mm-hmm. it, it, the, he would have remained mostly someone that I had once read and moved past. But the, not, not that it's not a finished work. And there are all kinds of ways in which I, there are problems in the work, things that I think if he had lived, you know, he was he 38, I think when he died, I think so, you know, he was still a very young man. And just, I think, starting to grow into a wisdom that would have made him reframe some of what he said, I think, in ethics. But, but the, the devotion to Jesus, the commitment to the way of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and the, the ways in which he was daring enough to, to, to recognize the theological implications and the ethical implications of what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. Like, I... I had never encountered that before. And so I, you know, that it's at that point that he became, you know, a father to me, a, a mentor, a teacher that I would have the rest of my life. Yeah, I didn't, I, I read Life Together and um, that was a beautiful book to know, to know the context with, in which it was written as this, you know, secret seminary you know, countercultural to, um, you know, the, that Nazi movement that was rising up. And when you read that book, it's like, I think, I think this is what the community was supposed to look like. Yeah. And, you know, we have more of an entertainment machine in, you know, Western evangelicalism where, you know, it's like the sin to be bored in church. Um, (laughs) And, Yes. I don't know. There's just, there's something, that's what people are really hungry for. I think is, you know, that a, mm-hmm. a place to belong. And we, you know, we say, well, we'll do that in small groups, you know, well, you can, we're going to entertain you on Sundays and then you do the deep stuff on small groups. And yeah. I think we're just, we don't know how to do community in th- this Western culture that we inhabit very well. And I think that book really, really yeah. illustrates it. Let me tell you how they kind of connect this this part of the conversation to the earlier part. And I didn't know that I was going to, I hadn't thought about this in a long time, but this morning it came back to me that I, uh, a few years ago, I stumbled onto reading the Strange Glory, which is a, a great book about Bonifer, a biography about Bonifer by um, Charles Marsh. And in it, he talks about Bonifer visiting Laredo, Texas. And I like, you know, shook my head and looked again, like, wait a minute, what? And so I, I start doing deep dive, trying to find all that I can find about Bonifer's trip. You know, he's, he's in at Union Seminary, goes from there to Philly, from Philly to New Orleans, from New Orleans to San Antonio, spends some time in Laredo, eventually takes a train from San Antonio to Mexico City, sees the 
the Aztec ruins has a conversation with some local native boy that we don't know exactly all that played out there, but he writes about it in a, in a postcard, a conversation he had had with this boy and, and then comes, comes back through the American South. That's where he experiences black spirituality, including black Pentecostal churches and, and then back up to New York. And that, that notion of Bonifer in Laredo just mesmerized me. Right. And so I ended up writing this poem using at the end of his life, Bonifer wrote a series of poems and there's, there's a famous one in which he talks about stages on the way to freedom, discipline, action, suffering, and death. And so I, I used that structure and talked about him moving through those stages in this experience of Laredo. And to your point about the, the way of life he's calling for what I imagine kind of in the middle, the action stage is him in Laredo standing out and there was a church in Laredo at the time called St. Paul's. And so I'm, I'm imagining him standing there outside that church kind of coming to terms with what America is, what the world has become. And so let me just read this line and you'll see how it connects to what you just said. And I'm talking about him recognizing the binding truth of this place, knowing that it's named St. Augustine de Laredo. It's settled by a dawn, named for a saint, a station of the West come of age. Remember that line in his letters and papers from prison about the world come of age. No bloodier plot on earth. Right? So he's standing in this city that's named for a saint, but settled by a dawn and just blood soaked. And that recognition of this is what happens in the West come of age. We do violence and then attribute it or you know, offer it as homage to a saint. Wow. And it's, of course, so the next lines, of course, of course it happened here in this unlovely state, this city of these plains, Christ's words reaching you at last, delayed wounds flowering late, only just in time, blessed are the slow of heart. And that it, that line, blessed are the slow of heart, I had stumbled on teaching life together, in which I realized like this, this is what Bonifer believes. Blessed are those who slow down and meet Christ in, in that, at that rhythm. And I, I had said in a lecture once, just kind of offhandedly, you know, for him, blessed are the slow part. And so that is coming back here again in the poem, but that you can see there what that's, a bit about me, like how I work. Yeah. And it's also, I think about Bonifer and what his work calls us to, right? He, the truthfulness of it, that he's, he sees what's happening as it's happening long before others can admit it to themselves. And part of the power of his witness is that he was that truthful mm-hmm. and, and which is why they killed him. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. the, that prophets become martyrs because of their truthfulness. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, I was going to say that, like, that's what we do to the prophets and it's been happening. You know, even, even Christ was pointing that out. Like you who stoned and killed the prophets. And of course it has to be in Jerusalem, he says, right? Like the nearer you get to the, to the center, 
the more at risk you are if you're a prophet. Mm. Which is why he didn't go to Jerusalem for, until the end. <laughs> That's why he waited, right? Yeah. So he knew what was going to happen there. Yeah. Absolutely right. I like that slowing down and bearing, encountering Christ in the slowness. And you wrote this article, How God Becomes Human, that really captured my attention. And you said we're so often like Anna bearing witness to Christ coming in the world around us in the lives of our friends and enemies. And we are often like Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, providing sanctuary for those who are giving birth to Christ as we ourselves are giving birth to that which prepares the way for Christ to come through them. And I don't think, I don't think we like that in Western. We want to be the one through whom all the action happens. We want to be the ones through you know, that make things happen and get the glory. And sometimes we are, we need to slow down to see what is God doing? Oh, there's leadership rising up in this person over here. And I need to, I need to help, you know, raise them up and lift their voice. And I think that's a, just a really beautiful line. You want to speak a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I think you see it embodied in Elizabeth. You, You see it embodied in Mary in a different way. You see it embodied in Joseph, you know, that that Joseph, one of the things that stuns me about Mary's husband, Joseph, is that he is sensitive. I mean, he he dreams, notice, he dreams God's will for his family. He is protecting the child and, and the child's mother. But when he dies in the Gospels, no, it's not reported on. Like, there's no record in the Gospels of what happens when Joseph dies. And I think that's an un, it's one of those things that's not said that speaks loudly, hmm. and that he could die without creating drama. Hmm. And, and that Jesus and Mary could let him die without there being a ruckus, without there, without there being a tumult around him dying. And I, I think he, he leaves the story with a kind of, he, he essentially disappears off stage and you don't even notice that he's gone. Hmm. And there's a, there's a deferential, a deferentiality to the way that he lives that to me is so much like God, so much like what we see about God, whose work is almost always hidden from us. And hidden because he doesn't need to be the center of the tension of attention, right? Another poem that I'd written: the last thing God needs is to be noticed. God doesn't need anything, and the last thing he needs is for us to notice that he's doing something. Hmm. And the you see that with Joseph, you see it with Elizabeth, you see it with Mary, you see it with Andrew. Like Andrew is in the Gospel of John, he's the first disciple called, the first apostle. But the first thing he does is defer by bringing Peter to Jesus. And when he brings his brother, he goes and finds his brother and then brings Peter to Jesus. And when he brings him to Jesus, he says, we have found the Lord, Hmm. found the Messiah. And he doesn't say I have, even though he's the first called. And he doesn't say the Messiah called me, right? He says, we have found the Lord. And that marks his witness throughout the gospels and and throughout the rest of his life, this, you can see it in Christian iconography in which Andrew is often shown stepping back with his hands open 
as Peter takes center place. So he, he kind of withdraws so that there's room for Peter before Jesus. And that, that seems to me to capture something essential about the nature of God and the nature of godliness hmm. that, that we are, we are happy to be the, the way that I said it in a sermon a few weeks ago, like Andrew is the overshadowed one. Like he's the one who's known for being Peter's brother, but that's what we know about Andrew. Yeah. That's Simon Peter's brother. He's overshadowed, but he's not afraid of being overshadowed because he knows like Mary to be overshadowed is to have the life of Christ shaped in you. Oh, like the spirit comes and, uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And so like, can we be comfortable at home in the second place? Like can, can, I mean, this is, this is an explicit part of Jesus teaching, right? When you go to a meal, do not sit at the head of the table, take the lowest seat. You know, the first will be last. The last will be first. The on and on that it's Jesus again and again is making clear, like pushing to the head of the line is that's just not, what he's calling us to because that's not who God is. Like that's not what the abundant life looks like. And there's a, there's a way in which it's more blessed to give than to receive. And we have to, there's a line in Philippians that is often, in fact, some translations translated as if it's not what Paul said, but what Paul actually says is we must consider others better than ourselves. And there's a there's a wrong way to hear that a, a kind of slavishness in which I'm I'm punishing myself in order to exalt you and are diminishing myself in order to exalt you and and that is certainly not needed I don't need to humiliate myself in order for you to be glorified God doesn't need me to be humiliated in order for God to be glorified so it's not less or more in that sense it's not a competitive relation but I I genuinely do have to take more delight in the good that happens to you than in good happening to me. If I can't, if I if that's not what comes up in me, then I'm not yet really filled with the spirit of Jesus because that is what comes up in him. Wow. I mean, my brain has exploded multiple times in this conversation and I really could talk to you all day long about this stuff, but I'd like to read something that you wrote as a benediction for this time that we've had and uh and then i'll give you a last sentence to say if you'd like but um you wrote in that article sometimes we are not the ones giving birth but the ones being born before we bear christ for others others bear us into christ likeness we should never forget that we are held in god long before faith in god becomes our own We believe only because others believed for us, and we go on believing only as others continue to believe for us and in us. We are carried in the womb of others' faith in such a way that we come to bear others in our faith. Christ is formed in us, and so we become mothers of God. Through our labors, our prayers, and our tears, our acts of mercy, and our cries for justice, We share in the sufferings of Christ, groaning to give birth to all that God purposes for creation. Amen. I mean, I, Lord, I, I believe it. I hope, I hope that it's in some way becoming true for me. I know it's true in the sense that people have borne me. I mean, I, I, I hope I'm able to bear others in something like the way 
I've been born. I'll bear witness that it's happening. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank you for your voice. I want to thank you for your art, your writing, um, and what you're doing in this world. It is truly birthing Christ in some very needed places. So thank you. Um, thank you. It's a joy. I love the spirit of this conversation. Well, thank you so much for listening to the Liminal Living Podcast. If you have enjoyed this conversation, uh, please give a share to someone you think would enjoy it as well. Post it on one of your socials. Um, rate, review, subscribe. Do all those things that helps other people find us. And if it's something that you are enjoying, I bet you someone you know would also enjoy it. And maybe they'll find a good conversation because of what you share. Uh, this is almost the conclusion of the year. We have a one more episode for you coming up next week in which um, we do a best of where we revisit all of the conversations I've had this year since I started in April and find out some of your favorites. You've done some recommendations of episodes that were your favorite and you've written some very kind words on why they were. And we're going to include all of those in a season finale next week on Wednesday. So be looking out for that and I will see you then, my friends. Have a merry, merry Christmas.